Welcome to Drinking With Authors. I am your host, Erica Lance. My co-host today is the amazing Bo Lake. And our guest today for the second appearance on our show is Amy L. Bernstein. Welcome. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Of course. Of course. You're so much fun. We love having you. Okay. Let's talk about what we're drinking. So I'm doing something a little different. It's in my Tinkerbell mug. Um, and it is coffee, but I put espresso Baileys in as the creamer. That's delicious. I'm going to be playing a video game late into the evening this evening. So I needed a little pick me up. (laughs) And so that's what I did here. Um, Bo, what about you? I am only drinking ice water because I just got back from a three mile walk in the 90 degree heat. And I am feeling dehydrated. Wow, you are a brave, brave soul there. Yeah, yeah. we're doing the smart thing. That is smart. And I am I drinking try. a very cool, crisp, you can't quite see it, French Chardonnay. And uh, it's the Ooh. perfect thing for a summer evening. Mm. I love it. I debated wine, but I was like, I got to be up late. And so <laughs> you got to. I got it. I do. It's a requirement. It's a requirement. No, just kidding. It's not really a requirement, but just saying. Okay. So Amy, what have you been up to since last we saw you? What exciting things are happening? You know, I probably published six books or something. No, no, not really. Um, I I have been doing a lot though. I have been doing a lot. I've been doing a lot of writing. Um, I do have a novel uh, that came out, I think, since we last talked and talked, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that when it's kind of wild and crazy, hard to classify. There is a mermaid in it, which is always a good thing. Um, And I'm also a book coach. So I work with a lot of other writers to help them on their writing journey. And that's something I really enjoy doing. So let's talk about that for a minute, because that's not something that is, I think it's been mentioned on the show. Well, of course, but um, Amy, let's talk about what is a book coach? Why would you need a book coach? That sort of thing. Because I think a lot of people don't even realize this is a thing in the world. Absolutely. It is a thing. And I, I went through a rigorous certification program that's run by a wonderful company called Author Accelerator. And a lot of the people hear the term book coach and they think, well, isn't think, isn't that just a fancy term for an editor? And it's really very different because an editor usually just works with a text or a completed text. A book coach will really work with the sort of the whole writer as an accountability partner, as a champion for their work, and as someone to really help them kind of get through the thicket and the challenges of trying to structure a book and asking a lot of hard questions questions and sharing a lot of amazing tools to help that writer sort of find their own way to their best work. It's the kind of partner that you wish every writer had because writing is so lonely. How do we know we're doing it right? Well, I think a lot of people wonder if they're, because this is ties in with imposter syndrome, because I think a lot of writers think that they've written a great piece of work and they may have written a great piece of work, but then it goes to go out there and they're not finding whatever they thought was going to happen when they send that book out to the world. And Mm -hmm. so then they start doubting themselves going, am I any good at this? Blah, blah, blah. And so what is the situation that's causing that to not go onto the road to success that they feel it is? So So one of the things, one of the things that's happening is that there's been such an explosion in indie publishing in people able to publish their own work. And while, of course, it's wonderful to be able to control your own creative process, put the work out in the world the way you want to, get the cover, you know, just the way you want it, those are all wonderful things. But what's happening is that sometimes or oftentimes, um, a lot of those writers kind of don't have that quality partner to go along this process with them and say, you know, um, you know, I'm really not sure that that the structure that you've got going here is telling your story in the best way. I'm really not sure you figured out your why. Why are you writing this book? I don't know if you understand who your ideal reader is, who's really going to read this book, point of view, is it consistent? There's so much to master about the craft. And when you work with a book coach, which many writers, you know, do not yet have the chance to do. But when you do have that lucky opportunity, you really are going to have a partner with you who's going to take you through the really tough stuff and make sure that you write something that's really commercially viable. 
um, because it's not easy to do. Um, it's not just about words on the page, right? It's it's all about structure and a lot of other things that go with that. Agreed. So just on, on this topic, because we've got to jump to the mermaid here soon, shortly, and everything. <laughs> no problem. I could talk about book coaching all day. No problem. Yes. I love it. But I'm fascinated, honestly. I'm fascinated. I see that talk about this like the whole riveted. time. I'm riveted. Yeah, leaning in the even like I love good. that. Um, let's talk about how you find the a good coach and a right coach for you. And what are some things to look out for? Because I know some of our listeners are gonna go, that's what I need, a book coach. But right. as with everything in the publishing world. You got to know the do's and don'ts before you go down a path because you can end up mm -hmm. having your writing dreams crushed by somebody who says they're one thing, but it's not, you know, doing what they should For do. For sure. There's so much, there's so much kind of writer beware stuff out there, isn't there? There are, it's true. There's so many different scams and so many people who are ready to take a writer's money um, because the writer just really wants to, somebody to solve their problems. So um, I would, I'm going to just put the plug in because I know it's, I know it's for real. And I know the integrity, the people who do these works, authorxaccelerator.com, authorxaccelerator.com is a fantastic website to begin to check out what a trained book coach really is and what he or she can do for you. And, you know, there really is kind of a book coach for every writer. We have a lot of different styles and it depends on what that writer needs. I'm certified to work in nonfiction, but, you know, a lot of us also work in memoir and fiction and other kinds of forms of creative nonfiction. And uh, I think that's a great place to start where you know you're going to be able to trust um, the process and the kind of people that you come across. Quite honestly, book coaching is one of those things now where you can practically just randomly Google it, and at least you'll get some folks who pop up. Um, and what you really always want to look for is someone who's going to be very um, straightforward with you about um, how they're going to help you um, become the best writer that you can. They're not going to write the book for you. They're not a ghost writer who's going to write the book for you. They are not going to be overly prescriptive and tell you this is what you should do. This is what's wrong. This is what's better. They're going to help you go on that journey yourself as a writer, because if you can't figure out how to do your own craft, then, you know, you're not really you're not really doing yourself any favors as a writer. And neither is that potential coach. So the other thing is that a really good coach has an intake process and they will take you through some paces to make sure that you're a good fit. And often for a nominal fee, sometimes for no fee, they'll give you feedback on a small number of pages so you can get a sense of the kind of feedback that you can get from someone who's really looking out for your best interests of your work and of you as an author. But yes, you've got to be very careful. Do a lot of due diligence on anyone you consider engaging. I think that's great advice. And I always say, get referrals from that person. Yes. Like, who have they helped? and get them to um, give you titles that they've worked with that have legitimately been published too, because that's another exactly. thing. You don't want a coach that actually has never had any work published from people that they've helped because. Mm, yeah. Maybe. Sketchy. Yeah. Well, well it, it takes, it can take a very long, as you know, it can take years until somebody, finally somebody gets that work out there, but for sure there are, in other words, a lot of my clients, are still in the writing phase. Some of them are just tiptoeing up to the, you know, querying in the marketplace phase. It does take a while, but um, you want to make sure that that coach is really going to be able to work with you as a kind of a whole person and roll into all those, roll together those roles of an accountability partner, um, a champion, and a genuine coach who can offer you tools and guidance for you to be the rest, best writer that you can. That's very cool. I think that's awesome. I'm so glad we talked about that because if you want to write a book and also if you have the idea to write a book, you can reach out to a coach too and talk to them and have them do some consulting. So you really understand what you're getting into because, you know, I always say it that the amount of people that come up to me and go, Oh my God, yeah, I'm going to write a book or I'm in the middle of writing a book and don't finish. And, the, the and then they just go off a ledge because they don't really realize what they're getting into. For sure. Bo. They don't know about the business or any of that. They're just like, I'm writing a book. It's very romantic. you know. Right. It's, it's really such hard work, you know, and you can have enthusiasm for those first 10 or 25 pages and then you just run out of steam. And, you know, many, many very good books and many talented writers quit 
too early because they don't have that person to sort of push along with them and say, listen, what you're doing here is really interesting, but what about this? What about that? You know, have you thought about this? Let's talk about, you know, what is the blueprint for your story really look like, which is one of the key tools that we, that we work with authors. Now I work with a lot of nonfiction authors and I love nothing more than helping somebody with a really interesting idea, sort of take that idea all the way through to being an actual book proposal with like real meat on the bones. It's a very exciting process. And that's really, really hard to do on your own. Oh, I agree. Especially too, if you're trying to tell your story, like a memoir type thing or something mm-hmm. like that, because you have the stories, but even some of the best storytellers you sit down and listen to aren't necessarily the best writers to piece the whole thing together to take That's the right. reader through the story. Because mm-hmm. at the core of anything, you have to be a good storyteller because your reader needs to keep wanting to run through what you're you're telling them and not stop. I mean, that's our that's all of our goal, I suppose. Right. Uh, and what a lot of people don't realize when you mention memoir, many people don't realize that a memoir is a lot like really good fiction. It's a story that's told um, that uses time in interesting ways with, you know, time moves forward, but then there are also flashbacks. There has to be a really clear point to the story. There has to be a a journey of transformation for the person telling the story. So a lot of the things that we think of that make a great novel also make a great memoir. And, and it's not just like sitting down and writing, you know, what happens on day one and going up to day 1000 and doing this kind of in order. Um, That's often not the best way to tell that kind of story. So structure, structure, structure. It's really all about how we, how we put the pieces together. I, that, It's so true. It is so true because you, yeah. And, you know, I often say this when people are talking about writing even historical fiction where they're writing about somebody in a situation, but even if you're doing a semi-autobiographical thing and referencing it, um, you're not, you don't know every single conversation. And even if we're remembering back to something, some conversations have impact, but other situations, you don't necessarily remember the exact room, everything like that. So you have to go and you, it, I feel like even memoirs, nonfiction, that type of thing has fiction in it because nobody was standing in Abraham Lincoln's office when he was talking to somebody to hear exactly how the conversation went, you know, unless it's written down or something, you're going to have to make up the gist of what was described in that conversation. So it's, it's, that's fascinating. Okay. Mermaids. Mermaids, Amy, I was going to say, we need to talk about mermaids now. Yeah. So talk about the biggest transition of all time, right? (laughs) So um, this book that I wrote, which is, again, probably not going to show up because I've got a I've got a screensaver on, but I'm I'm poking it up into the sweet spot just a little bit. Let's see. I had it there for a minute. It's behind your head. So we can see it behind your head. It's behind my head. You are right. So um, (laughs) so dreams of song times. This is. I, I have, I've worked so hard to, you know, one of the things you've got to do is figure out how to classify your novel, right? So it's about a mermaid who's full of secrets on the run and ready to risk everything for a future she never saw coming. But that's the log line and that's not even the story. And so what I did is I mashed up, I love crossing genres and mixing them up together. So, you know, this is a little bit of a socio-political thriller. Um, it's a little bit of a um, damsel in distress. It's a coming-of-age tale. It's um, someone who's being hunted to the brink of extinction. There's a tremendous amount in here about um, uh, it, the um, the disappearance of species from the planet, including many, many, many endangered indigenous human populations all over the world. So I wrap all this up in a story about this um, young um, human-mermaid hybrid who basically has to make her way in a very dangerous world where she's treated like an outsider and she's trying to find her place and has a lot of secrets to hide. It's full of like almost everything. You know, there's a little bit of sex, there's a little bit of violence, there's some sad stuff, there's some fun stuff, there's some being chased and in danger stuff and like a little little of everything, which is why I have so much trouble classifying it. Well, I was going to say, Amy, you're kind of famous or infamous for this genre, like cauldron of genre-ness 
that is just where you create. And I remember that from our last, the last time, believe it or not, even though I think Bo doesn't think I remember anything after these podcasts, it's fine. It's fine. A lot of judgment over there. But um, I didn't I, say anything. I know. I'm sitting which, quietly. Yeah. You don't have to say anything. The looks, the looks. But I think it's fascinating because none of your books are in a same thing. Like that's not, that's, that's not what defines you as a writer, Amy, at all. So where did the idea for this come from? You know, the idea began with a joke or a challenge to myself, but then it became something serious that I worked on really hard. And I did a huge, you'd be surprised how much research I did for a book about mermaids. So quick aside, I'm going to answer your question. I did such a deep dive into um, um, mythology and folklore about mermaids all over the world, not because I was going to really be recreating that, but because I wanted some texture and some background to my story. And I have this little kind of meta thing going on where my heroine, Elle Gossamer, who's half, who's, who's a uh, human mermaid hybrid, is trying to discover her own origins because um, um, she's all alone in the world. I'm not going to explain why. And she's doing this deep dive into these ancient books that I made up that are all about mermaids. But then there's all this stuff. So it's like, it's all made up, but then there's real folklore from real cultures. But of course, they made it up too. So I love the meta levels of this. It's like the 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 real stuff that was made up inside a book that's all made up and and the the lore is inside books that are made up anyway it's kind of i love that the head spinning but <laughs> like that but um it's not complicated it's easy to follow it's just the fun the fun layers of it so you know um honestly this was really some years ago now when when i started thinking about it you know i i follow a lot of um um, a lot of agent um, um, websites, and I used to follow Twitter a lot. I'm not really doing the Twitter slash X thing quite so much anymore, which is another story. Uh, and most people, but yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and agents, you know, agents were always kind of literary agents, always like what they they're always saying what they want, and it it's it rose to the level of a little bit of a um, a little bit of a, a cliche in a way because. Some agents were out there saying, oh, well, you know, I want a story about dragons who fall in love on the moon, but then they discover oil and then they have a really big family and then there's a war. So you get these like kind of peculiarly specific out there things that they say they want. And I'm like, I'm not right. This is what am I going to write? This is not what I'm going to write. I'm not going to write this. So I said to myself, almost aloud one day, I just sat there. I said, you know what? I'm going to write some damn book about a, about a mermaid who's a spy. And she does this and she does that. <laughs> My mermaid is not a spy, but it's still pretty <laughs> wild and crazy. But you know what? The great the thing is the gifts that I gave myself is I suddenly let, I suddenly allowed myself to just like run free. Okay, let's see where we can push. And I went through a ton of drafts, just a ton. Um, but that, that's, that's it. <laughs> I, I think myself. that's fantastic, though, because there's definitely writing um, to commercial things and stuff. But I also feel like the agent thing can be such a weirdly fickle situation mm-hmm, when it mm-hmm. comes to because. The whim changes like they may think something, but whether or not the publisher will do it and whether or not in that moment the publisher will do it. And, you know, it's just it's it things can change on the wind. Again, the brilliance of being able to publish yourself as well as you can create stories and stuff like that. If you just want to write to market, you can absolutely do that. But I feel like there's not you you become very. uh, formulaic, like Harlem yes. romance, kind of formulaic in, mm-hmm. in books, which is not bad. I mean, people love Harlequin books, like the, right. that whole thing. But there's definitely almost a formula to exactly how to write those books, regardless of the characters. And I still have to be a good writer for it to to land. But right. if you don't want that, create what you want to create. Well, and part of the, you're so right. And part of the dynamic, as I'm sure you both are well aware, is that, you know, I think of the whole the whole industry is kind of a funnel 
where at the tippy, tippy, pointy, pointy, well, not funnel, think of it as a triangle, but at the tippy point of the triangle, you've got like those big five publishing houses and a couple a couple tiers below that that are still really impressive. And they're, they're sort of taking fewer and fewer books. They're closing imprints. They are, they are under so much um, market and cost pressure that they take fewer and fewer risks. So they need to bet on stuff that seems pretty surefire. So you've got these agents trying to get these in publishers interested in, in books that are increasingly, I mean, not that there isn't great, amazing new literary fiction being put out there that's interesting and risky, but that's a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of what's getting through and what's at the tippy tip of the triangle. The thing is, it's just really hard for agents now to sort of sell books to publishers because the economic pressures, um, you know, the cost of everything's gone up, the, the publishing industry is consolidating. So no wonder the bottom of the triangle is spreading and getting wider and wider. And that's all the folks who are like, to heck with it. I'm going to write the book I want to write. I'm going to publish it myself. I know I can see where I can market it and I'm going to go for it. And of course, for some people, that's working out beautifully. Well, and I think, you know, I, I would like to jump on the bandwagon of what you just said, sort of dovetail into it, um, so to speak, is this. Traditional publishers are not training their fucking authors on how to create their platforms and how to market their own books. Mm-hmm. They, they just hope authors can figure it That's out. That's true. And because we're in such a different place than we were five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever. Cause obviously, yeah. you know, 2011 create space and self-publishing, not that it didn't occur before there, but there was a little, like it started the boom. Right. Yeah. But um, you still had traditional publishing sitting on what what people want to read. They were tr- making the decisions on what people want to read, right? But now you have all of these self-published authors that figure out and find their niche and then start helping each other figure it out. We have such a radically amazing community that authors are willing to help other authors. It's not like somebody is, you know, keeping it secret and safe and like you don't get to to see it where I feel a lot of the larger publishers have completely, they're like a giant oil tanker that can't turn themselves around or even notice what's happening because you like, I, I used this example the other day. And I, when I was talking to somebody about it, they were floored, but um, we went to, uh, a convention and there was a person who had been picked up by I want to say HarperCollins or maybe it was Simon and Schuster and they published a book right he had a backlist of self-published books they were all young adult mm-hmm. they all had a Mexican heroine in them and mm-hmm. his new book similarly same thing it was just a different story they made him take them all down and then said that he was an emerging author you know, that's so interesting because what I thought you were going to say, this the happy version of that story is that the one that the, one of the big five picked up, they pick up his backlist and they reissue them under their, you know, under their name, which is, you know, the, the which is almost like, like the Cinderella version of that. That's happening too, but only for a tiny fraction of authors, just like it's a tiny fraction of authors who self-pub and then sell phenomenally well. And then the, then the big, big guns swoop in. Right. And the, I think the other thing is, because again, you well know, so many indie authors have decided that the route to success is to publish in series because that's how they're going to build a fan base who start buying so that by book four, you know, you've got more people buying book one, two, and three, and then everybody's book four. And it's like a snowball effect. But I, what, what I will say with that about that is I, I respect it as a strategy, especially as a marketing strategy. Unfortunately, I think it's a real challenge to quality. Um, no, it can be, but I'll tell you, um, uh, book scan, book scan. No, um, it's going to come to me in a minute. There was a lot more Bailey's than I thought in that coffee and it's already, in <laughs> it's fine. But the, one of the statistics that is really interesting that has been monitored for the last 20 years is where does, where do authors generally not the exception, but the rule find success. And it's after they have six books out. And then true success is after 20 books out. Mm -hmm. And that can be single solitary stories. Like I have a horror author friend of mine, Jeff Strand. He has a couple little micro series, like three books, trilogies, 
but most of his stuff is standalone. He's a horror author, right? But, you know, there's a momentum to doing that. So I don't mm-hmm. think, and here's the truth though, traditional publishers aren't taking on series-based authors anymore. Right. They're just simply not. Or if they are, they go, well, we'll see how the first one does, right? Unless you're George R.R. R. Martin or J.K. Rowling <laughs> or something like that. But yes, which is why it's so big in the indie world, because you're taking on all the risk yourself. Meanwhile, you're building a fan base. You are. And the truth is, like, a lot of people forget about J.K. Rowling. We're going to have to take a break. And Bo, I'm sorry this went this way, but you, you get <laughs> no, the first question after the break. But <laughs> J.K. Rowling, a lot of people don't realize that nobody was interested at all until almost book three. That's right. Like she was, and didn't, and it was only the, what is it? Applied scholastic success or whatever, that little thing that went out to all the students that got her going. And George R. R. Martin was a TV writer. He's amazing, but he was a TV writer writing a ton of stuff before he got where he got to. But I agree with you. Like there are some successes, but If you go back and look at the journey authors who are listening to get to that (laughs) success, very few people walk out the door with the success. If you look at statistics, more of them walk out having to do several fumbles through there, you know, to get to where they are. And I think that's something that you have to um, be willing to do that because we all know, and as readers, we finish a book. The next thing we do is what is the next book by that person? If we liked it, right? And if there's no next book, we're on to whatever else. And if it takes too long for your stuff to come out, you've lost those humans, right? They're they're gone. You've got to just hope they signed up for your mailing list. But, you know, I, I talked to um, an author recently and they were ta- talking about their books coming out and it was like a book every three years. And I was like, oh my God. Like a book every three years, your fans are, you're going to have to go through a whole new cycle of finding fans again. Cause you know, not that George R.R. Martin hasn't taken his sweet ass time. Although <laughs> as I've said before, I don't know that I would want to be him and try to write this after what they did to that TV show. So and the, the, I think too, of Diana uh, gabbled on, or however she says her name, because I'm a, I am a major Outlander fan, but I will hasten to add, I haven't read a word of her. In, on paper i'm a major outlander fan because i discovered it through the series but <laughs> talk about you know having to like put it all out there oh yeah well it, and what's interesting is for friends that have read that i again i i very much enjoy the show hello jamie it's nice to see you um very, yes very much. Yes. yes um <laughs> but and that in any show that has that amount of men in kilts, I'm you've got me. I don't even care what the script says. I'm I'm I can mute it. Worst case scenario. But, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> but what's interesting is you again, this was somebody it wasn't like her first book came out and they gave her a TV show. And if you read right. the books, they're similar, but they're not the same. No, and they seem quite literary. I, I think I looked at this first several pages of the first one and you know, just, there's a lot of. Well, we call it info dumping, but, you know, in the literary world, it's not info dumping. It's just you're creating like a, you know, a mood, right? So, but it's very, it's, they're dense, really, really dense. And so, you know, you have to do something different when you're going to bring it to TV. So. Oh yeah, no, that's, and we'll jump back into this, but one thing that gets eliminated from, first of all, she writes historical fiction. That's what that is. And I, I am, I am not a fan of the historical fiction genre. That's not derogatory, just not a fan because, like you know, Jane Austen, it takes a long time to get anywhere. And I, I literally, I'm not a a trolley kind of girl. I'm gonna, I need the pace to be picked up to get moving somewhere, build suspense, but I don't need to know the what made the paint on the damn houses. I don't care. It's not gonna make or break my thing. But a lot of people don't realize. The biggest thing that you need to do, because I write screenplays and stuff, all of the exposition, just throw it away, pretty much. 99% of the exposition you have in your book, chuck it out the window because nobody has time for that ever to get to that point. So anyway, with, with that note, we will take a break and be right back <laughs> with Drinking with Authors in this very opinionated podcast, which I appreciate. Be right back. Hey, listeners, 
you know me, Eric Lance, you're just listening to me in the podcast that you have, but guess what? I'm doing something new. Yeah, she's joining me, Mark Muncie, the author of the Erie, Florida book series in Erie, Appalachia, and we are hosting a new podcast called Erie Travels. Woo-woo, Erie Travels, which covers things like ghosts, cryptids, weird stuff, UFOs, men in black, all kinds of fun things that people talk about and I'm sure you've discussed with friends. Yep, and you can listen to us on your favorite podcast platform of choice or find us at eerietravels.com and join in the fun and all the spooky goodness. And of course, Mark, what do we always say? We'll see you on the other side. We are back. We are back, Bo. Start leading <laughs> the conversation. No pressure. So we, there's always pressure. I feel it. I feel it on me right now, on my shoulders. You're talking about how you like the mix genres, um, and that it's like a big old, Erica said it's like a big old cauldron, and you're stirring it up. And Erica brought up a point. She says the genre doesn't define a person as a writer. What does define you as a writer? What defines me as a writer? It's clear. Mm-hmm. It's so clear to me now. I couldn't have answered this like six or eight years ago, but I can tell you that I can see what my preoccupations are. And I don't even know what they are until I've written the books. Um, because I guess I've written, what have I written? Six novels, four, four of them are out there. One is, you know, in submission, one needs a revision. So, so now I've done it, right? I got the words on the page, right? Mm-hmm. And I am definitely someone who um, likes to um, let readers feel, but to make them think. So I do bring in themes about equality or social justice or you know um things about politics and i understand that words like that seem like a big turnoff to a lot of people but i what i want to stress is that those are things that we are dealing with in absolute everyday life by different names and so it really is about kind of battles between the strong and the weak, who has power, who doesn't, how do they get it, how do you take it from them? It's things of that nature. And I find that those are my preoccupations in novels again and again and again, again, without being, I don't think, who likes heavy handed or, you know, when I say that there's politics in my novels, there's only one where there's actual quote unquote politics, because politics with a small P is really about power struggles between people, communities and systems. And you can put all of that in a novel and the reader doesn't even recognize it as such, but I'm thinking about it. I, th- I think that's it's important what you just said because there are some books that I think we all read that we read for the sheer um, escapism of it. Just to, It's kind of like watching Hallmark movies or rom-coms or something. And I don't think a lot of people watch romantic comedies and have some brilliant life lesson learned from it. They're entertained. It's no, it's formulaic and nice. It's like putting on a sweater. Exactly. But I think it's so vitally important because I think there are books that you can read that are not blatantly smashing it into your face. But get you to think about it, even if you don't realize you're thinking about it because of the book. But you start, like, I often joke, um, especially with my kids when they were younger and stuff, because I I, I applied the approach that I wasn't going to tell them what to do. I was going to tell them what happened when I did what they were doing and then let them make their choice. Because basically, as a parent, you generally end up being right all the time when you do that, just for the record. <laughs> when they go and experience it and a lot of these situations the same thing happens like I'm not saying every situation but you go down certain paths it's a path right but I I think it's sometimes interesting to give people um an analogy or some piece of story right without going I think you should do x and then having them have that story resonate and that little voice on their shoulder go Psst. So do you remember that the situation, the best thing to do is X, Y, Z, or this is how you saw a very cool resolution to it. And they might not go, oh, crap, that was in Amy's book. But it's there and it sits there, like just brewing for the moment. That that would be lovely. But also, Bo, you said something that really just resonated with me a moment ago, too, which was you said, like, when you're reading, like, genre or whatever, like, like, 
horror genre, like putting on like a comfortable sweater. My my version of that is put the sweater on, but make sure that sweater has really funky buttons. Like do something, right? So like in my paranormal romance, I mean, paranormal romance has a lot of rules and tropes, right? Is a genre. But I put all the stuff, I put in all the stuff about like, archaeology and the black market for stolen antiquities and how unethical that is and i did a lot of research and so like i'm always gonna like be putting this stuff in there that you're gonna so you find yourself thinking but you're still kind of reading a romance so i love finding that finding that line just to straddle it's it's fun yeah but see you slightly broke the formulaic thing of Mm -hmm. paranormal romance because normally it doesn't have too much depth to it i love paranormal romance don't get me wrong avid reader by reader i mean listening to her of audiobooks because that's what i do <laughs> um but there are books that i absolutely pick up because i'm like oh this is going to be entertaining and light and i'm driving and it's going to be great and then there are other books i pick up going i know this is going to break me prepare play you know <laughs> so um, Amy, before we go into literary briefs, I'm going to let Bo ask a question after I ask this one. But um, so you have two other books that have not come out yet. What what genres are those ones? Well, one is I, I, I'm writing a lot of speculative fiction. And so um, one of them is and I also write to I like to write stuff that's like super topical. Now, in, let me just say in publishing topical you got to put in quotes because when you get a traditional publishing deal you're talking 18 to 24 months if you're lucky before the book comes out and you better that it's topical so you know i've got two <laughs> traditional books out there which you know I, I think they've they've held up well enough but um uh one is um is uh about um a complete sort of what you might think of as economic breakdown where the economy breaks and people wind up um collecting in tents on someone's very large very large backyard it's called tent city so it's kind of a breakdown of the u.s economy and also a breakdown of social order pulled through you know one particular community that seems pretty topical to me that's one the other i'm even more hesitant just to say um because it's out on submission and so um let's just say that um I'll just put it, I'll, I'll put it like out there like this. What do you think the world would be like if um, men were the ones getting pregnant? And that's all I'll say about that one. I don't think we'd have a very populated world. That's what I have to say about that one. Um, especially if it switched suddenly. <laughs> okay. So what are you working on then, Amy? Well, I'm, I've been on such, I've been doing so much hardcore fiction that I'm I'm on a little bit of a I don't want to say a cleanse because that sounds like I'm trying to like kind of get rid of something but you know what I found is I tried to lean into a new big fiction project right after starting to send my latest book like out of submission and what I realized is you know what it's like you know if you exercise too much it's actually not good for your muscles so um I have I do write um craft essays I just had a blog on janefriedman.com she's like one of my favorite people in publishing because she has so much integrity and puts out so much good content for writers and and the whole publishing world so i had a piece uh, just last week in there about um wrestling with a uh, first person point of view it's the, the the perils and promise of first person and so i love doing work like that so uh and i also teach a number of workshops um writing workshops i do bespoke workshops which is to say if you can get a group of a minimum of six writers together i will run kind of a master class for you on any number of topics that often goes really well um and i teach for savvy authors and i've taught for um a bunch of other um places and uh i'm in maryland and i'll be presenting at the maryland writers conference and things of that sort and i love doing that because i learn so much when we do coursework together i learn from other writers and I learned from trying to explain the stuff that we think we all know or want to know. The more you wrestle with it, the better you get at kind of understanding it. So I love doing that kind of thing too. So I'm I'm staying pretty busy, plus my coaching clients. Wow. I'm just gonna say you hit on another topic and then we're going to literary briefs. And then I'm Bo, you're gonna take the questions for literary briefs. I'm not gonna stop you. Promise. <laughs> um, but is community. So 
whether you're getting a group of people together to have a seminar, all these things you're talking about, writers conferences, stuff like that, it's community. You've got to make it so writing is not a solo project. Mm-hmm. The actual writing is generally going to be so lonely if you find a writing partner and you're online, but generally you're both listening to music or something and typing because it's solo project. Um, I've, I've watched a lot of my authors and friends do it. I'm looking at you, Bo. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, I think it's important that you have that because you do get better like watching other people, even if you're very skilled at a craft, you get better being around other people doing that same craft because everybody has little ticks, uh, tricks and tips. Oh my gosh. Wow. And more motivated too. Yeah. You have, because so more Bailey's in like, your glass. <laughs> like, it's what are you fine. I'm, you're right, I've right got one more sip. <laughs> I'm sorry, Bo. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to, to talk over you. I'm no, so sorry. No worries. No, repeat what you said, Bo. Because I think it's... basically that if you have another person to talk to, you're more motivated to keep working because if especially if they're actually like being very productive, especially if you're a little competitive, you'll you'll want to do more work because they're doing work. Well, and if I could just briefly, that's exact. That's one of the things that when you're working with a book coach, they really help you. They really help you sort of get over those humps and those like discouraging months. You get to the middle of your novel, and I call it the muddle in the middle, and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. This is falling apart. I can't write this. I think I should just stop. And so, work having that writing not not a writing partner because they're not they're not writing, but in that coaching role, they're helping you figure out what the issues are and how you can get through them. And so sometimes it's almost a kind of a therapeutic relationship, but, you know, a lot of writing, you know, we are kind of putting ourselves through a sort of a lot of kind of therapeutic stuff. And so that sensitive coach is really going to help you get through that so that you're not, you are, yes, you were doing the writing, but you're not alone in trying to find your way through the process of writing well. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. We're going to literary briefs. Dun, dun. I should probably get the producers start putting music on that. We need a we need a little theme for it. Yes, I'll I I'm gonna make a note theme for literary briefs because if I don't write things down, I'm drunk enough that I'm not paying attention. It's okay. Okay, Bo, it's in your hands now. Remember, Amy's been on the show before, so you have to. So I gotta have and I, questions. And I flunked. I flunked this segment before. I just want to remind you of this. So we'll see if I can move from an F to a D. Let's see where we are. Yeah. I did I did see you your email flunk. about flunking this and I remember in the email it said that it was your favorite book was the one you flunked yes um, yes so let me can I a quick aside so um, so no yeah I needed I need to know what your favorite book is because I'm assuming you've been thinking about it um what my favorite oh I don't have a favorite book what happened was favorite book at the time the the elena ferrante trio um my my brilliant friend in those books i think Mm -hmm. when we talked i was obsessed and i was plowing through all of them and i couldn't remember the name of the book probably because i'd been drinking um (laughs) and so so a friend of mine who listened to that podcast said she's yelling she's yelling at the podcast she's going my brilliant friend my brilliant friend like you mean i really forgot did i really forget so i i'm horrified (laughs) <laughs> I, I I don't I can't always like retrieve a name so well like I'll remember details but I I may not the name may not come to mind so anyway all right I I can be on the hot seat whatever whatever you need whatever you want to do what, with me just do it what is your favorite book right now that you've read in the last let's say since you were on last so this is going to be a little weird but I'm back. I was a I was a Victorian literature major in college eons and eons and eons ago. I never lost my love for it. I'm actually reading Henry James' The Golden Bowl right now. And it's the kind of book that no one would get published today, like almost no one. But he had such an original mind as a writer. And I'm I'm fascinated by what he's doing because nobody's doing today well that's probably not true somebody probably is doing today almost no one's doing today what he did which is like it's all interior thought like 99.9 percent of the golden bowl is interior thought not only that it's interior thought being there with from an omniscient from an omniscient narrator so you're not even it's not like you're lodged in a first person interior thought you have an omniscient narrator giving you the character's interior thoughts and analyzing 
interiorly what's going on in everybody's brains. I was going to say, I mean, that's just sounds. Those are not even words anymore. What's happening over there? <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I don't think you'd like it. <laughs> but, but you know but, what? But I've read it. Yeah. Okay. I'm I, okay. I, I did read did, it, did, but I have did to you say, like it. Um, no, but not because okay. it, it's just hard. There was a time I actually liked those kind of books and I just, it's not forgive. Sorry. My doorbell puppies went outside. Um, it's not that it's, I will say though, about that book, he does something that regardless of the genre you're writing in, right. It is, I write from first person and I've talked, I've had a lot of people tell me that, you know, cause writing from first person, I don't want to say is dangerous, but you've got to, you've got to be able to do it and you've got to be able to do it well, because you can really quickly just be monologuing for lack of a better word, if you're not smart about how you do it. And he was very, very smart about yes. presenting it where it wasn't monologuing the situation. It wasn't it wasn't that you weren't drawing the person because he draws the person into the story. So I will, I'll give it that even though right. I'm and, not be writing it again. And, and read, read my first person piece at Jane Friedman. Cause I think you'll really, I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, because it, it gets at what you're saying about not falling into the, some of the, some of the traps, but I will say on a more contemporary note, um, I really did like Maggie O'Farrell's last two, um, Hamnet and then the one after that, I think it's called The Marriage Proposal, but that might be not by the right the right t- title. I, you know, it's funny. On the one hand, I know she's classified as historic fiction. I mean, and she is, but she also, what she does, I find to be so fresh, it almost takes it out of the realm of historic fiction to be just really creative fiction that happens to be set in a different time. So I'm making kind of a little a bit of a distinction there. I think you're trying to talk me into reading that. It's not going to I think I am. <laughs> I, I, Amy, not only that, you've managed to create for the second time in a row where your friends are yelling at the podcast because of the book. They're going to be like, that's in the name. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. Okay, Bo, keep, keep going. I'm not taking this away from you. If you had to recommend only one of your books to somebody, just a random person, which book would it be? My books are so different that I go by the person, but I, if I had to simply shove one into their hands, it would be The Potrero Complex, which is a mystery thriller um, about um, a, uh, 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 a journalist who is forced to try to solve um, the disappearance of teens from a small town. That's the one. Why? Because I think there's something in there for almost everyone. If you're, if you like mystery thrillers, that's great. But even if you don't, it's not so quote unquote mystery thriller ish that you can't find other things. And because I said it in a fictional in in the wake of a fictional pandemic, and so it gives you a chance to have a kind of a cathartic experience that's not like coming out of our pandemic, but you're going to bring your own thoughts and feelings to it, which I think is fun for a reader. Topical. <laughs> topical now i'm like what questions should i ask because i don't know which questions you asked last time erica oh I, we covered several things but so <laughs> amy what is uh one of the most interesting things you didn't realize you had to coach with an author oh that's a good one that was like that had like triple negatives in it let's see <laughs> The most it was, all, it was all first person POV when I said it too. Did you like right. it? Interesting <laughs> things I didn't realize I had to coach with an author. Like you're coaching authors. There's yeah. certain things you go into yeah. going, they could get stuck in story and writer's blog. And yes. I know there's a list yes. you already know. Yeah. But what is something that you went, wow, okay. I didn't know they needed that. Um I think the thing that comes up universally again and again is sensing when that writer's self-confidence and belief in their project is failing and what you can say to them to reignite the spark that they had in the beginning. And when you do that and you see them re-engage with their work at a difficult point, maybe it's research, maybe it's a difficult rewrite, that 
is a wonderful thing. You really feel like you've helped somebody. I think that's fantastic. It's it's one of the things I enjoy the most when I'm talking to people is I jokingly call it sort of the muse aspect because I don't think a muse is necessarily giving you ideas. The the concept was they were, they were there kind of like a coach to help get you to your art being out, right? That's this whole muse thing. And I think it's imposter syndrome is so ugly for authors. It's so, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's ugly for everyone to one degree or another, right? But authors, like most artists, can easily with nothing really sparking it, take themselves out of the game. (laughs) So, um, okay, Bo, did you come up with a unique question? I did. Yay. What, what is your guilty pleasure book? Oh, my guilty pleasure book. Um, I used to read like, um, no one knows who she is anymore. Maeve Binchy. She was an Irish writer who was really popular, probably in like the, I want to say maybe the seventies and eighties, but the, what I'm leading up to is that it's like pure family melodrama. Um, these, this in, big intertwined Irish family, they all live like in the same within blocks of each other. And it's like almost soap opera. And I used to love those books. Um, I'm trying to think of something more recent that you would that you think of as like because God knows I got lots of guilty pleasure TV. Let's not even go there. Um, we are going to go there next. So, oh, but but with reading, really. with reading, I, I'm you know I'm I'm much 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 more selective about what I read than what I watch. So mm-hmm. I'm not trying to evade your question, but my reading time is limited and kind of sacred. So I don't I don't always use that for quote unquote the guilty pleasure. I mean. This is going to sound so unbelievably stupid and pretentious, but for me, it's so true. A guilty pleasure read for me would be to go back and read like Edith Wharton's The House of Mirth for like the fourth time. That would be like yeah. guilty pleasure for me. It's like, or no, or to reread Jane Austen. It's like, just do it again. Just because it's so wonderful. Read it again. Read it again. It's like, yeah, but there's so many other books out there. Yeah, but read this one again. That's my idea of guilty pleasure reading, which is very different from guilty pleasure viewing. What's your guilty pleasure show? Well, just like so many, like, for example, I loved, I loved Virgin River, um, which is, you know, it's basically, you know, a, a soap opera in the Pacific Northwest and a love story. And it's not that complicated, but it's so bingeable. And I loved it. I think it, I think it was based on, I think it was based on books. It was. I seem to always love the things that it turns out they were based on books. I also really, really loved um, you're going to know the name of it. What's the one with Sarah Chalk and Catherine Heigl um, about the two Firefly. of them? Oh, uh, Firefly Lane. I, I, and the most recent, recent episode of that, I mean, we're talking, we're talking like binge central. Like so I just, I will it. warn you, don't read the books then. They're because, not- because yeah. why? Because, well, that happens to be one of the shows where the, um, Definitely didn't try to take that book all the way forward, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, mm. Um, mm. you know, I, I feel like there are shows and movies that take kind of the concept of it, but don't take the meat of the mm-hmm. story. Not that you can have the whole entire book in there, right? But you can definitely take parts of it that do, to me, more honoring the book versus they took some of the characters, mashed up some of the characters, some of the, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, That's but. interesting. Well, I mean, I mean, I cried like a baby on the last episode. So for me, it was really satisfying, you know? Um, you oh, know, I don't I, think they did bad. It's, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I've it's gotten different. over my, by doing this podcast, really. Um, I've gotten over my whole, like, I want the movie or TV show to be like the book. Right. Mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. I what I've realized is I don't it it's never going to be that. And I understand, especially doing more screenwriting and stuff. I understand where you have to mash up things and you have to choose what story in the book you want to tell. Right. Because you're not going to tell every little right. story in a book. There's way too many of them um, unless you get given a TV show. But then you have to get given a TV show where you have more than one season to tell the entire book, because it would probably take for most books three seasons to tell the entire book correct right. right 
but well, with, I, a lot, with a lot of boring episodes in between because well, there's some crap that yes we could and we could talk for an hour about how the emotional arc of the emotional arc has to change from a book to a movie like i mean there's things that are both have to be that are both simplified and deepened when you move to to a film medium it's su it's such an interesting transition so i love what we do in the shadows the um uh -huh. vampire yeah I, I mean we just we just laugh absolutely laugh out. it's so so ridiculously funny and i have to say that i mean years ago i watched most of the seasons of doc martin and then it sort of disappeared from easy free tv i don't know if you're doc martin the the british series um it basically takes place in this quaint seaside village and it's about a very curmudgeonly doctor who comes to serve the residents it's one of the most effortlessly funny shows i've ever watched they just put season nine on public television for free so I'm now back to kind of quasi binging that it's, it's a masterclass in comedy because as I was saying out loud to my husband, the best comedy is not forced. It just so it's organic and it comes out of the actual characters. So character-based comedy is so wonderful. And that's what doc Martin is. It's hilarious because of the people and how they interact with you. Like there's not a forced joke in it. And I really respect, I really admire that. It's very funny. Oh, doing humor. I would say it is one of the hardest things in the entire world. Super hard. So and hard. What we do in the shadows to me is very much like that too, because, you know, it's a mockumentary style show. Right. But it's so um, ridiculous that you just go, this is silly, but I think people don't realize what it takes to create a character that comes across as ridiculous as these characters do, because it's not really slapstick you know what i mean right. a lot of that humor on that show is how dumb these characters are like right. just intelligence level nothing but it's such a brilliantly written yeah. show in characters and so i agree i agree completely it okay Bo, you, you get the final question my darling no pressure or anything um <laughs> what is your desert island book if you had to have one book to read for the rest of your life, it's I'll just my 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 knee jerk answer to that is going to just going to be almost anything by Jane Austen. It just is. Which one was your favorite? We talked about this though. You did have a favorite. I honestly, I'll just confess, I've been using passages from her books to teach, but I haven't reread her now in several years because I keep forcing myself to try to read new stuff. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. we could all just live in Austin land and that would be it to it. I know so, you'd love to live. I wouldn't want to live there. I'm going to live somewhere else, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll chit chat over the fence. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but, um, so no, I mean, I, I mean, I can't, I can't pick one. I mean, I, I mean, I do think that, um, um, sense and sensibility and pride and prejudice are, you know, probably the masterpieces, but, um, frankly, if you just literally stuck maybe except maybe sanded him which she didn't finish if you stuck any of them in my hands i would be I, on that desert island I, i'd be i'd be happy but then again then again i remember there was a time in my life where i read the magic mountain by thomas mon like three times and i haven't read that in probably 40 years maybe i should be stuck with that one again well i here's the thing i think it's kind of like watching shows over again because i'll watch and I'm not every person's like this, and we got to wrap up the show, but um, because I mean, we could talk for hours, we know that. Um, is that I like Bimbos of the Death Sun is my favorite book of all time. It's this little tiny book written by a mystery writer who's talking about a nerd convention way back in the 80s when it really wasn't cool at all. Like I say it now, and people are like, Convention, and I'm like, no, this was like in the basement of a hotel that they didn't really even put a sign on the marquee because that's how nerdy it was. But I love every now and then just going back and reading it because I re-experience all the emotions and things that I love about that book. So I'm just going to say I'm an advocate, even with limited time, taking the time to get your comfy sweater with your um, different buttons and stuff funky like buttons. that and <laughs> funky buttons and put it back on and wear it. I think you can. So that is my advice. So Amy, shameless self-promotion time. Uh, anyone who wants to follow up on anything that I said or, you know, fact check me, whatever they want to do, should go to my website, which is amywrites.live, just A-M-Y-W-R-I-T-E-S dot live. Not only can you find my books, but on the happenings tab, you can find out about some of the, the courses that I'm teaching and about probably more about me than you want to know.
And the link to my book coaching is there as well. I was going to say, I don't think that's true. And your latest book, the title, my friend? The latest book is Dreams of Song Times. Awesome. You are amazing to have on the show. And when the next one comes out, I insist you come back and continue with I, us. I plan to. This is probably the fastest hour that I've ever spent. And it's been <laughs> absolutely fun and delightful. And thank you so much for having me back on. Of course, of course. We, and we just love having you here. This has been Drinking With Authors. I've been your host, Erica Lance. Um, my co-host today has been Bo Lake. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, yell at the podcast and tell Amy that she said the title wrong. Totally fine. All of these things at the same time. Our guest has been Amy Bernstein, and we will see you guys next time.